Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. As our precursors who believed the earth was flat. The false perspective that we live under is the idea that the epicenter of the human mind is thinking. Thoughts are what generate our behaviors. And that if we could get our thoughts in line, if we could only learn the right way to think, that everything else would fall into place. Negotiating interpersonal life is simply a matter of getting the right insight, somehow being given the right set of ideas and concepts and that everything will fall into place. And this idea that thinking is at the epicenter of the mind is certainly by now one that's way outdated. Some 2,500 years ago with the appearance of the Dharma first suggested that the mind actually has no epicenter, no generative, single, controlling entity, that thinking was just one of many components in the mind and was no more central than any other component. But he even went further and said that if there was any center or controlling element, it was feelings, the way we feel in our body. Right after we have any interaction in life, We have a feeling, and from that feeling, our drives and desires and our thoughts appear. So feelings were for the Buddha, if anything, if any component of mental experience lied at the epicenter, it was not the verbal component of the mind. Freud, in 1900, with the interpretation of dreams, and proposed that the the mind was, or there, there was a tripartite, mind. The core drives of our species were unconscious, that we weren't aware of it. And then in the 1970s, great neurologist Benjamin Labette showed that thinking arrives way after our impulses to act, and that those impulses to act stem from unconscious processes that we have no control over. And then after that, Antonio Damasio, the most fundamentally important uh, neurologist and neuroscientist of our day showed that it's gut feelings, what he called somatic markers, once again mirroring the Buddha. Feelings were the most fundamental drivers in decision-making and our choices in life. Also, the polyvagal theory, which I'll talk a little bit about, our most essential function as human beings, which is our biological imperative to connect with each other to survive. That's how our species survives. We love to believe that thought or thinking is the central part of this process, and that's why so many of the ways we communicate with each other are language-based. We text each other. We post, we write emails, we labor under the idea that we are somehow connecting 
with each other simply by sending words to each other. But our security in our connections, the way we bond with other people is not founded on words. Social engagement is based on a amazing evolutionary development, a neural pathway that came to fruition uh, with our species. Originally, and you see all of the evolution of species in our nervous system, originally reptiles had simply an autonomic nervous system, and when they were under threat, they had a parasympathetic nervous uh, structure that would create freeze states when they were startled. So a lizard would generally freeze and stop in its tracks, or, and some species will literally collapse when under attack. And that's that early parasympathetic structure is still in place with humans. If you're in bed at night and suddenly you hear a large crash sound and you're not sure where that sound originated from, was it in my apartment or was it outdoors, the first thing you'll do is you'll freeze in bed. You'll have this sort of terror freeze. If you're walking on a hike and you hear a sudden sound in rustling beside you in a bush and you can't see what it is, the first instinct we have is to freeze, to stop, to stop breathing, to literally go into a frozen vigilant state. That's the earliest survival structure in the brain. The second was then the development that came to its fruition with mammals of a sympathetic nervous system, which played an exact opposite role, unlike the early ancient parasympathetic, which made us freeze and stop and not act. The sympathetic nervous system would make us mobilize. That's where the fight and flight comes from. They the mobilization to take an action is entirely based on your sympathetic arousal structures or nervous system. So that's an overlay on top of this more ancient one, which is to collapse, freeze, stop, do nothing when under attack. The second layer is to attack or to run the hell away. The third and the highest form of survival uh, uh, structures in our nervous system is the social engagement system. And that is a uncanny ability that we have to represent all of our state of being and our feelings on our face. That's what allows us to bond and interact with each other. That in any given situation, you will represent what you are feeling in the structures of your face. And this development might sound like it's not a big deal, but actually what allowed it to happen was really pretty massive. All of the chest and the stomach have these nerves that are called myelinated, and these nerves are really super fast, and they send their signals up to your face, 
and your face represents what you're feeling in your body. So when you have a facial expression of joy or sadness or anger or fear or curiosity or disgust, what you're doing is representing your viscera, your gut feelings on your face. Now you can try as actors do and children with a sense that the only way they'll survive is if they smile all the time or act polite. You can try to put on a false expression that you're not really feeling. But guess what? Other people, we are brilliant at reading other people's faces and discerning it, what their real underlying emotional state is. Because if you're, for instance, really feeling anxious and worried, but you try to put on a smile, what will happen is your eyes won't move. They won't. You'll get the famous uh, TV anchorman, welcome, thanks for watching Channel 7. You know, the smile that is up here, but the eyes don't move. Or the yoga teacher, welcome. But, you know, everything is here is like dead and frozen inside. Uh, so we, we try all the time to present emotions that we don't feel. But the people that we're with are in an uncanny, very fast way. They're reading our body language and especially our faces and they're discerning whether or not we are actually presenting an authentic representation of the way we feel. And they're actually discerning what we're really feeling because they can read the entire nuances of the face in a millisecond. This was necessary for our survival. Our ancestors, when they would encounter somebody from a different clan, out during hunter and gathering, that person might very well be hostile or they could be benign. They could be friendly. And the only way people would know how to discern was not on language, because language is a relatively recent appearance in our species, about 30 to 40,000 when we've been on this planet for 200,000 years at the very least. So for much of the human experience, it wasn't mediated by language at all. You'd have to look at somebody and immediately be able to read their countenance and discern whether they were going to be someone you could bond with and connect with or if they were going to be hostile or if they were frightened of you. And all of your behaviors and the way you thought about them would stem from this immediate scanning. And this, the wisdom that you would get as you read this person in an instant about, it takes about 20 milliseconds, a fraction of a second, is the readout would be in your viscera and your gut feelings, not as a thought, because that's far too slow. Thinking takes far too long for you to defend yourself. You would know by the way you felt. If you encountered somebody for the first time, you would entirely have a readout in your body. You would either relax because something in their face would tell you they were friendly or you would get on guard because something in their face said 
that they were aggressive, or you might become aggressive yourself because something in their face would say, I'm terrified, and you might want to take something from them. But all of that would not be determined by thinking. It would be determined by the way you felt. That process is so has to be done so quickly, it's entirely done by unconscious structures in the right hemisphere, the midbrain and the brainstem. It's known as neuroception, and none of neuroception is conscious. And all of neuroception depends upon you seeing and being in the presence of someone to get an accurate appraisal of how they really think or how they uh, how they really regard you you need to actually be in that person's presence to have any sense of whether there's a bond that's possible or not so essentially in our species what's happening is we have three we have a whole evolution of our nervous system the ancient freeze the relatively uh, old uh, sympathetic fight or flight, and then we have this really modern invention which displays how we feel and our emotional stance in our face. And when we interact with people, we are reading that social engagement system, the facial expression of how we feel, and we're doing it unconsciously. So none of the whole process at all is mediated by language. Language is simply the most recent add-on, which happened well after our species had been around for a long time, and it's simply something that we do to inhibit really, really bad impulses. But language plays very little role in human bonding. We'd like to believe that when we send a text or an email or that we get a post that we're actually in some way solidifying or furthering a relationship. We're not in any way establishing or concretizing our bond with someone. Generally, in our day-to-day life, the way we interact with other people is the first thing we do is we use the most recent invention in the animal kingdom, the social engagement. If I meet you for the first time, I will go in and I will represent how I'm feeling on my face. And if you present a feeling on your face that I can feel comfortable with, then we'll continue then to use language and emotions to connect and deepen our relationship. But if there's something on your countenance, your facial expression and body language that presents to me either complete indifference or more likely even aggression or fear, then that will trigger my sympathetic nervous system and I'll want to get the fuck away from you as you want to get the fuck away from me. And that will impose, that will push me to act in a survival sense. But suppose you're about to attack me. I suddenly see you've got a knife and that you're going to lunge at me, I might freeze. I might go back to my earliest evolutionary impulse. So we have each of those. And the thing that determines which one we use, whether we use facial expressions or actions or freeze to survive an encounter, is not our thinking. 
It's actually the brainstem, the oldest part in the brain that gets all of the information from the body and then decides, okay, I can work with this person. I'm going to allow thinking and executive function to happen where I can communicate with language. But maybe the brainstem decides, uh-oh, I don't like the looks of this fella. I'm going to, I'm going to protect myself and it'll shut down my executive function and it will put me into a survival mode and that will determine entirely how I regard you and interact with you. Stephen Porges, the founder of polyvagal theories, amazing, one of many amazing insights he had is that the way we breathe, our heart rate, the amount of control that you have over the fluctuations of whether your heart rate jumps too much or it stays relatively calm, and how quickly you can calm your heart rate determines which of those systems you will use when you interact with people. People whose heart rates tend to jump or fluctuate wildly because they tend to be more reactive. Those people are much more likely to go into their fight, flight, or freeze states. Children who grow up in abusive settings wind up with wildly fluctuating heart rates and therefore they can't interact with people in certain situations. They go directly into aggression or fear or outright dissociative fee freeze because literally their heart rate tells their brainstem, I can't interact. I can't use executive function. I can't connect vulnerably through facial expressions and language. I have to protect myself because that was their earliest experience in life. So how we look at each other non-verbally is what establishes our, our security. And given that we're a social species, the interpersonal non-verbal connection, our ability to interact in a, in, through a vulnerable disclosure of our emotions are what lies at the heart of human bonding and human security human confidence. It's entirely not done by text. It's entirely mediated by the vulnerable presence, proximity, attunement, care, the, the look that another person gives us. Thoughts are only a very last gasp inhibitor of action, but the bulk of what we do in our bonding and in our lives is um, that meaty moment when we present a vulnerable expression to another human being. That a lot of my last 11 years, I've been volunteering, training hospice workers at New York Zen Center, as well as teaching here and doing counseling. Um, and one of the biggest leaps that people make, have to make when they do any kind of chaplaincy work or any kind of volunteer work with people who are sick or vulnerable is they have to learn to stop relying on words as a way to help or heal or be part of someone's healing. The way we heal is by presence 
and by vulnerably mirroring back someone's emotions to them. And the only way we can do that is if we allow ourselves to feel what they're feeling. When I'm with someone who's desperately struggling, I don't try to cheer them up. And I definitely don't try to use language, first and foremost, as the means when somebody is in a great degree of distress. I just sit and I mirror back the expression or I try to be vulnerable and signal back to them through my own facial expressions and body language that I get it. I don't have to be clever or smart or intellectual or say the right thing because none of that will actually co-regulate another human being. Co-regulation is a miraculous process that human beings have. When we are deeply triggered, agitated, distressed, what calms us down is not somebody telling us it'll be all right. It's somebody's presence, their facial expression, their tone in their voice that I link up to. And when we do this, we accomplish something called limbic co-regulation. We start our heart rate sync up and we start to breathe once again at a slower pace. We go out of sympathetic arousal into homeostasis, which means we can interact, we can actually use the social engagement system. And that process is mediated, not through words. Now, many of us, due to early life experience, can have personal histories that prime us to unfortunately misread the expressions that other people give us and therefore needlessly wind up in arousal when we don't need to be. People who grew up in unreliable caregiving very often will unconsciously choose emotionally unavailable partners because that's what they got in childhood. So they're attracted to partners who are not really available for commitment or intimacy. But then they'll spend the entire relationship especially a relationship if they finally find someone who's secure, they'll spend the relationship reading in the other person's face abandonment and intentions to leave where there are none because that was their early life experience, being abandoned at crucial junctures of their life. And they will become suddenly activated and anxious and expect to be abandoned when in fact the other person has no such intention. Some people will grow up with caregivers that are emotionally overwhelmed, are emotionally stressed out, anxious, uh, completely uh, suffering from a personality disorder such as borderline or uh, bipolar or narcissism or whatever and that that parent hasn't yet tr uh, gone through treatment and that child will grow up expecting people to be un uh, disappointing and terrifying and so that person will read in other people's faces engulfment they will feel that somebody is always about to trap them into something they don't want to be trapped into. So their early life experiences have led to a struggle in 
neurocepting, reading other people's emotions. People who are bullied at school very often will see aggression in other people's face where there are none. I was uh, bullied in one summer camp, and for many years later, I would see aggression in male friends' eyes and countenances that was not there at all. People who experienced early social rejections will very often see that people are rejecting or judging them where that's not happening because that was their early experience. So they start to neurocept it unconsciously. They start going, becoming on guard and activated to leave or fight where there's no rejection happening. The way we have to deal with these situations is not by trying to think our way through or tell ourselves we'll be all right, but the way we work with these situations is by changing the way we feel because it's the way we feel that will create the ability to connect and bond securely with other people when we are needlessly triggered. I'll give you an example. Uh, the previous week, I was asked to speak at a large Buddhist event for Tricycle magazine. And when I went there, there was about, I don't know, 100 people, none of whom I knew. And it was in a completely novel environment. And everybody looked ex very different than the people I teach. They were like a whole group of very kind of much older uh, people who looked, frankly, pretty uh, like retirees or a little bit more conservative than the kind of crew I generally attract. And I, I felt, frankly, nervous. And I speak in front of people all the time. But in front of this group, this new situation, uh, it started reminding me of early life experiences where with interacting with peers at a new school, uh, I didn't feel that. I felt rejected. And so I started to feel my autonomic, my sympathetic nervous system started to activate. I started to feel nervous. My heart started pounding. My brainstem read that. And then my thoughts to justify the situation started to raise. And so what did I do? If I tried to tell myself, oh, I'll be okay. I do this all the time. That wouldn't have done a damn thing. I would still be just as nervous talking to them as I was because thinking doesn't talk anybody out of being nervous or having a panic attack. plays no role. I could do other uh, things, but what I knew would work is what I did. When I went up onto the stage and they had us sit down, I went into a broad body state and I made sure my exhalations were much longer than my in-breath and I found one person's face who looked very friendly in the audience, and I stared at them. And so in looking at a friendly face, it, I neurocepted that, which created a pleasant body sensation. In going into the broad and build state of when you're in that 
broad state, your body is not in sympathetic, not in the sympathetic, which has you contracted and ready to mobilize. When you're like this, your body is reporting to your brain that you can use your social engagement system. When your body is big and spread out, your chest is wide, your stomach is relaxed, you're making eye contact, and you're being, you're just allowing yourself to naturally express what you're feeling, then you're in the social engagement system and you can relax. The breath, the long out breath, is reporting to my brainstem that I'm not under attack. So I didn't have to go into any startle state or any activation state. So I could do the entire process. At no point did thinking play a role in the process. It was entirely embodied and physical. Now, I could have done some other techniques that would work just as well. I could have visualized being with someone that I feel really safe, and that would have created a naturally relaxed, a longer breath. And so I do a lot of visualization meditations as a way to relax and maintain a state of uh, homeostasis. And of course, I meditate all the time as a way to maintain vagal toning, which means my heart rate hopefully doesn't jump as much or fluctuate as much. And I have a greater, hopefully, degree of ability to regulate my heart rate so that I don't needlessly put myself into an anxious, activated, triggered, wanting to get out state. And I used to be in that because I grew up in a very violent childhood. So much of my recovery has been meeting in therapy with Buddhist therapists who created a uh, a bond that was not so much based on language, that was based on a very safe interaction of emotions and also through meditation and through my own counseling with others. If we have any of these attributes of misreading other people's intentions, uh, misreading their states of being due to our own childhood emotional wounds, what will happen is unfortunately our thinking will not come to our aid. In fact, thinking doesn't ever play devil's advocate. If you are stuck due to early life traumas or wounds, reading hostility or abandonment or dysregulation in other people's faces where there are none, your thinking will justify that misperception. It will say to you, it will justify why you're dumping people. And it will encourage you to not bond and take risks. And it will justify every person that you've left in your life because that's what thinking does. It always goes along with what we're feeling. If we want our thinking to be uh, in charge of helping us heal or regulate or address wounds, it plays, unfortunately, far less of a role than we would like it to. So what does play a positive role? One, seek safe people in your life. Try to bond with people who can calm you, who can soothe you, not so much by the sterlingly brilliant things that they say, but because something in their presence, just being around them, 
gives you a permission to relax. Your body naturally settles. Your shoulders relax. Your stomach softens. And you'll know who these people are because when you think about them, you just visualize them, you will start to feel a sense of ease. You will start to feel something in your chest or your stomach where the viscera, the somatic markers, the neuroception is telling you, oh, when I'm with that person, I can relax and use social engagement. Two, controlling the breath. Learning to keep yourself in a breathing pattern, long exhalations, full inhalations, but long, very long relaxed exhalations that will tell your brainstem, I can use executive function. I don't have to fight or flee or freeze to survive this situation. I don't have to be on guard. And when you're on guard, you can't use all of your executive resources, your cleverness, your association in your right hemisphere, your creativity, anything you can't use. Three is seek spaces that are predictable, stable, not too loud. Poor Jess's research showed that uh, loud Spaces where there's a lot of movement and low hums triggers a very ancient predator prey vigilance in us that makes us less capable of learning, less capable of connecting and bonding. People who try to connect and bond at loud bars where they're playing uh, music, that can be fun, don't get me wrong. I, I love listening to techno in the gym. Makes me run faster on the stupid treadmill. But when I'm connecting with someone, I don't like to do it at any place where they're playing music that's loud or where there's a lot of movement. I like going to a place where the background is really predictable because it pe keeps me in a social engagement mode. And finally, it's really important to stay away from situations and settings where we're constantly being evaluated. Borges' research showed that environments or settings where we, kind, we constantly feel we're being assessed by other people triggers the sympathetic nervous system and takes us out of social engagement. And he's been on a crusade to get educational systems to do less testing and less assessment because his research shows that people don't learn and can't get curious because they're not in social engagement when they're in any setting where they feel they're about to be evaluated. So that's tonight's talk. I hope something in there was interesting. Uh, tonight we're going to do a meditation directly, as always, based on the themes. We're going to learn to downregulate our, uh, our uh, autonomic nervous system to a state where we can use social engagement. So thanks for listening. Find a really comfortable position. And when you're ready... Close your eyes. And when you close your eyes, don't try to push your body into any, any state. 
don't try to attain any posture. Just allow your body to tell you what is balanced and what's comfortable. This is part of our movement towards trusting and reading our bodies and connecting with our somatic experience, which is essential not only to learn how to connect and bond with others, but if we're aware of how our body feels, we can know when we are needlessly in an arousal state, and we can start the process of down-regulating the arousal so that we can once again use our executive functions, our ability to connect and reach some kind of interpersonal harmony, not through aggression or defensiveness. So that depends on knowing how you feel in your body. So start by just connecting with how your body feels and let it tell you what balances. So let's start by using the breath to relax the key areas of the body that tell the brain whether we're safe or unsafe. So take a complete in-breath that's big enough that it opens up your chest or your belly and while you do that lift your shoulders up like you're carrying two heavy bags and you're lifting your shoulders up around your ears and then you're walking across the room and then you get there and you're dropping the bags with your out-breath and let that out-breath be as long as you can and when it feels Right, gently either butterfly or pull back your shoulders just enough to open up your chest. And what you've just done is significantly change the messages that your body is sending up to your brainstem. And you're now sending a message saying, I'm safe. I don't need to be on guard. So let's take another full in-breath and push out our belly or pull it in, something that feels uncomfortable. And then long. And while you breathe out really long, allow your belly to soften to its most comfortable setting. 
And let's take a third relaxing breath, a full in-breath. And while you do it, squinch all the muscles on your face, which do so much of the heavy lifting and representing your feelings to others. So squinch it up, squinch it up, squinch it up. And then as you breathe out, soften all the muscles because your face has done so much work and all throughout the day expressing your feelings, your state of being. Now let it relax so that it can find a neutral, relaxed setting so that we're not carrying around an expression that tells others that we're unsafe. So we're going to relax the face, let the jaw release, let the micromuscles around the eyes soften. Let your forehead, just any clenching in the brow, just let that be released. So let's just stay for a while in a really relaxing breath without trying to tinker too much with your breathing pattern, but just put a little emphasis, a little steering in keeping your out-breath really long, really letting go. And with every out-breath, see if you can find some area in your body that might feel clenched or tight or needlessly contracted. And with every out-breath, see if you can release just a little bit more stress. So really long out-breaths. And what we're just going to do for a while is try to get as close as we can, observing the breath, and just gently nudging it to be as relaxing and full so that we're going to tone the vagal nerve and send messages again that we're safe. And we're also going to make it much less likely in the future that we will be needlessly switched into survival mode. We can stay so much calmer if we can keep our breath long, complete, ease. When your mind slips away, just relax back to the sensations of the breath, maybe hearing the sounds from the street as well. But no criticism, no judgment. All that does is once again, flips us into those older settings.
So let's try some other ways to maintain a state of security so that we can interact with the world in a way that gets our needs met. Bring to mind a place that's serene, where you feel you can relax, a place where there's not too much movement, that's quiet, where you can go to to put aside all the unresolved issues of daily life and bigger issues that need to be addressed, all those can be put to the side. A place where we don't have to plan, where we can just go and allow ourselves simply to revitalize, recharge, replenish. This could be a blanket on a beach near an ocean or a a beautiful scenic view in the mountains or beneath a tree by a river or lake, perhaps a welcoming couch in a perfectly lit, quiet room couch you can sink into, some space that's predictable, supportive, and see if you can feel some energy flowing upwards in your body from the belly to the chest, or the chest expanding. The sure sign of moving from a guarded posture to a more relaxed pro-social stance. If you don't yet feel some sense of ease, a a releasing of contracted muscles in the belly, a sense of an ease in the flow of the breath in the chest. If you don't feel the shoulders slightly release, then deepen into the image or find another image that feels even more inviting. And lastly, 
bring into this setting someone either real or imagined that would be a perfectly safe, compassionate, soothing presence. Someone who would simply provide a sense of support and companionship. Again, this can be a real friend, attachment figure, therapist, colleague, or it could simply be someone you imagine. Let's see if you can visualize their face looking at you with a soothing, vulnerable, caring expression. These are our deepest needs that we have. Safety, connection, bonding, being understood. So in a moment, you'll hear the sound of the bowl. And when you hear that sound very slowly, not too quickly, as you open your eyes, set an intention to bring an awareness of your body, especially your chest and your belly. The more you're aware of your somatic experience, your visceral state of being, the more you can have a sense of when you're being activated. You can know what setting you're in. You can use the breath to essentially down-regulate yourself into a state of safety, security. And you can choose in a more skillful way who you want to connect with. 